Meter is a multi-blockchain company that allows you to trade across Ethereum and other public chains. There are a lot of public chains and there are a lot of cryptocurrencies. And bridging across cryptocurrencies, well, that sometimes exposes a lot of new vulnerabilities. In early February, Meter announced on Twitter that it had been exploited for about $4.4 million. Exploited, not hacked per se. Basically, someone was able to leverage a vulnerability of Meter to mint a large amount of BNB, a coin from Binance Exchange, and WETH, which is wrapped Ethereum. By minting their own, they depleted Meter's reserves for those currencies. In other words, those currencies were essentially stolen. Meter wasn't the only company to be attacked. There was also Wormhole Network, a token bridge that allows users to trade multiple cryptocurrencies across Ethereum and Solana blockchains. They reported losses of $321 million. And before, there was the attack at Cubic Finance, which also runs on the Binance Smart Chain. They were attacked for around $80 million US dollars. These losses are huge, and they point to the inherent risk in any new financial vehicle. Again, this episode is not about whether or not to invest in cryptocurrency. Rather, this episode talks specifically about how such vulnerabilities are coming to light within the Ethereum smart contracts, among other currencies. And in a moment, we're going to learn about the greatest attack against Ethereum smart contracts, one that never happened. It never happened because the researcher found and responsibly reported it. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm continuing my discussion of crypto, by which I mean cryptocurrencies, by specifically talking about the phantom function vulnerability in smart contracts, and how this vulnerability could have led to the largest hack against cryptocurrencies had it not been found and fixed first. In a previous episode, episode 39, I talked with researcher Guido Vranken about fuzzing cryptographic libraries and also his work fuzzing cryptocurrencies. That episode provides some background and context for what I'm going to talk about here in episode 40. It's not necessary for you to listen to that previous episode, but if you haven't heard it, and if you're new to cryptocurrency, you might want to check out episode 39 on fuzzing crypto first. At the end of January 2022, researchers disclosed that they had found a vulnerability in the service built around the router protocol. Just as the use of the word crypto is confusing, is it cryptography or is it cryptocurrency? And the same with smart contract, it's not really a contract, it's a program included on the blockchain. Here too, the use of the word router is not part of your internet gateway, but simply a route to get from one currency, say Bitcoin, to another. So it's a router. Fortunately, the company involved, Multichain, fixed the vulnerability so it can't happen again. But what's kind of cool, in my opinion, about using blockchain is that the proof of concept used to demonstrate the vulnerability 
it's still available within the blockchain. Remember, blockchains are immutable. That means the researcher can still pull it out today and demonstrate it. And that researcher is? I'm Yanis Maragdakis, and I'm a professor and co-founder of uh, DDoB, which is a security company uh, specializing especially in uh, blockchain security, in Ethereum smart contracts and uh, blockchain smart contracts. Yanis has this company, DDoB, which is focused on cryptocurrency vulnerabilities. And he's been pretty successful at finding vulnerabilities of late. Um, so I, I'm I'm an academic by training. So I've, I've uh, been a professor for the past uh, 22 years now. And uh, uh, we started this company, DDoB, uh, to try to apply some of our program analysis tools to real-world programs, and particularly in the blockchain space, in smart contracts, as the programs are called, that are deployed autonomously on the blockchain. This is a fantastic domain for application of automatic tools, and I can explain why uh, in, in a second. But primarily, we have DDoB uh, applying static analysis technology over smart contracts, over programs that run autonomously on the blockchain. So in this episode, there's going to be a lot of new words and terms, and I'll do my best to define them when they come up. So with that in mind, let's back way up. What is a blockchain? Blockchain is is a distributed ledger, which means uh, just like you have a ledger at your local county or uh, or town that keeps track of, say, real estate, assets, houses, uh, plots of land, everything. Uh, The idea of the blockchain is that we can keep a ledger like that for all sorts of valuables. And the big unique uh, feature of the blockchain is that nobody actually holds this ledger. It's not in a building. It's not in a computer somewhere. It's actually distributed among many, many people uh, in the particular case of the Ethereum blockchain, it's uh, a little over 10,000 uh, different participants in the network, I think. And they collaboratively build the next version of what this chain contains, what this ledger contains. Uh, now, with uh, Bitcoin especially, people have heard a lot about uh, what the blockchain is, how how this works, how you can have a ledger, you can have a long list of transactions that no single person ever holds on their own, that we hold it uh, collaboratively. We all have copies and the copies are all consistent. Whether it is Bitcoin or Ethereum though, at the end of the day, all cryptocurrencies are built on top of blockchains. And you can have blockchains for purposes other than cryptocurrency. And it's the code on top and the features within that code that makes them all different. So Bitcoin is one blockchain. Ethereum is another blockchain that looks very much like Bitcoin, but it uh, it has it adds to Bitcoin smart contracts. It adds arbitrary program execution to Bitcoin, and it it has very different technology. And especially in a few months, it's going to be entirely different technology in underneath as a blockchain. So, for example, Ethereum has its own blockchain, and Ethereum has its own features built into it making it distinct from Bitcoin. So Ethereum and Bitcoin are completely separate blockchains. But Ethereum, because it's programmable, because it allows you to deploy contracts, it has created a whole ecosystem where many, many 
other cryptocurrencies, services, financial services, banking-like organizations, they operate on top of the Ethereum blockchain. It is a blockchain, but because it's programmable, it's multifaceted and lots of functionality is being built on top of it. So then what is the smart contract component? Smart contracts are basically programs. So when you hear smart contracts, that's a name for a particular class of computer programs. It's not contracts. It's much closer to arbitrary programs in any other setting than it is to the kind of contract that you sign at a notary or with a lawyer or whatever. So smart contracts are programs. They are programs that live autonomously on the blockchain. So the blockchain, this long list of transactions, it actually can include program deployment, smart contract deployment, and smart contract execution. So I can just say my next transaction will be to deploy for everyone who's keeping this long list of transactions to deploy the following code. And that code will now live in an address and anyone can call it. And it can manage my money. It can manage my accounts. It can manage some logic that I want to put out in the world. So you have money, a cryptocurrency. How you negotiate it with other currencies, well, that's handled by these programs, these smart contracts. It can be, well, something very simple, which is not actually realistic, could be it's a betting shop. I'm going out there and I say, I write a contract and people can call it to place bets and we'll find out who the winner is and they will get money. That, for various reasons, that doesn't turn out to be realistic, but it's a good intuitive understanding of how a contract can be operating out there, making me some profit, and at the same time, it's, it's handling money. Now, the, one of the major uses of contracts is to implement tokens, implement currency or something that's like currency that reflects some other value. Uh, but the logic of how you print this currency, how you mint money, uh, or the logic of how you transfer it, that's implemented inside the smart contract, inside that computer program. Uh, so for instance, again, not entirely accurate, but I could give a simplifying example. Uh, I could say, I want to print uh, some my own Monopoly money for the game I'm playing with my friends, but it is a real world game. So anyone who has this money, the real world convention will be that they're entitled to something from me. They're entitled to some services, whatever, some, uh, some time on my podcast or something. I don't know what, what those services could be. Now, I may have computer code, I may have a smart contract that determines how new tokens get issued and then what it means for someone to transfer their tokens to someone else transfer their money of this particular kind that I'm printing to someone else. Because there, there are only two or three functions of money. You print it, you destroy it, and then you transfer it, pretty much. Uh, indirectly, the transfer may also include an approval for someone else to, to spend your money. But primarily, money is printed, and it gets transferred to someone, and that someone can transfer it to someone else if anything else needs to happen during that transfer, that needs to be encoded in that computer program. Because 
the ledger that actually says that right now Yanis has this money or Rob has this money, that's the blockchain. So the program has to keep track of who has the money and who has transferred what to whom. I should also mention that one example of a non-currency use of a digital ledger or blockchain is NFT, or non-fungible tokens. NFTs are immutable units of data stored on the blockchain that can later be sold or traded, with all the transactions visible to all parties. So NFTs, vast majority, they are implemented as smart contracts on Ethereum, yes. As we've established, Ethereum is distinct from Bitcoin and several other cryptocurrencies. One of the things that differentiates it is Solidity, an object-oriented programming language for writing smart contracts. Solidity programs, or smart contracts, are intended to be run on the Ethereum virtual machine. Most cryptocurrencies run within virtual machines. So how does one go about finding vulnerabilities in Ethereum? Here's why the Ethereum blockchain is a, an ideal playground for a program analysis researcher. Uh, we have all sorts of programs, hundreds of thousands of different programs, all these smart contracts that are deployed out there. I can look at them. I, I have their binary code. Most of the time I have their source code. I have all their past executions, all their past inputs and internal processing and outputs is encoded on the blockchain and their current state, like what is on their heap, so to speak, which is called storage in Ethereum. The current state that every time I call this contract, it will consult, like who has this balance, is going to be there. So you have this computer that you can completely crack open and inspect. It runs more than half a million different programs, actually many millions, but they're copies of more than half a million original code bases that are deployed by many, many thousands of people, and they handle real money. So it's an ideal application for program analysis because I can go in and I have everything I may need to do program analysis. I have the code, I have the input data, I have the state, and at the same time, I have lots of people who really care that this thing runs correctly because it handles real money. So I can get pretty deep results and those results will be actionable. They will, be, they will have real world impact right away. So that's what attracts program analysis researchers to the blockchain. In episode 39, we focused on fuzzing. Here, Yanis uses program analysis, which includes static analysis. No good analysis is entirely static. There cannot be analysis, good analysis of programs that just looks at the code. Uh, you, you always need to take into account what you see in the code together with the current state. So the code may be perfectly fine under some assumptions about what's the current state of the computation. But under different assumptions, it could be entirely not fine. So. In practice, good program analysis needs to combine something static, static meaning from the code, understanding from the code that I can understand without, without checking what happens when you run the program, and something dynamic, some information that says this is the current state. And so it's through this program analysis that Yanis found the phantom function. So 
Well, yes and no. This is, uh, we found this uh, major vulnerability recently, and it was originally flagged by static analysis, but I don't want to claim that uh, static analysis really found the essence of the problem. It had just given us a bunch of warnings and just randomly inspecting these warnings, uh, I had the realization that there could be a really, really sneaky bug in some code that people have not really expressed before. Uh, there could be a new attack vector that people had not really thought very much about. But I cannot really say that it was the static analysis that found it, although I wouldn't have inspected the code if it wasn't flagged by the static analysis. But especially for this particular vulnerability, uh, I cannot really say it was found by our static analysis. So the phantom function vulnerabilities are quite subtle. They rely on tokens and its implicit use of permits. In other words, you can allow certain transactions to proceed without being notified each and every time they are called. So this, so this vulnerability, uh, the, the attack vector, rather, uh, the essence of it is the following. You have in tokens, in the standard of cryptocurrencies that are implemented as programs on top of Ethereum, uh, you have two ways to approve someone to spend your money. You can either say, I allow Rob to spend $200 from my balance, and that's the traditional approve way. Or you can say, I will sign an off-chain, off-the-blockchain permission that with my cryptographic signature, anyone who takes this can know that I signed this particular authorization. And my authorization could say, I allow Rob to spend this much money by this time. That's the typical pattern. Allow someone to spend this much by that time. So when this is working properly, it works. But what happens when it doesn't work? When, for example, it's not expressly defined as a yes or no? Most uh, tokens, most kinds of cryptocurrencies that support the standard interface for def defining derivative cryptocurrencies on Ethereum uh, support the first kind of approval, just a straightforward approval. But many of the more advanced cryptocurrencies support both. The vulnerability the attack vector that we discovered uh, goes like this. There is a class of cryptocurrencies, of tokens, of programs, of smart contracts on Ethereum, that even though they're not designed to accept those off-chain off signatures, those permissions, when they are given such a permission, they just silently ignore it. And this sounds a little strange, like why would they silently ignore it? And this has to do with the semantics of the solidity language that's used for expressing smart contracts. And as it happens, solidity, especially in older versions, uh, encouraged use of what's called a fallback function, which is a function that will catch any function invocation that is not matched. The solidity fallback function is executed if none of the other functions match the function identifier or no data was provided within the function call. Only one unnamed function can be assigned to a contract. So if I 
If I call a function on a program and I have not defined that function, but I have defined the fallback function, the execution will go to the fallback function. That's the one that's gonna end up being called. Now, for various legacy reasons, many major currencies defined a fallback function. And in this way, even though they didn't support permit, they didn't support accepting those off-chain signatures, when they would get them, what would get executed was the code of the fallback function. And that code would just silently not do anything, but also not complain that it got these permissions that it didn't know what to do about. So that's effectively taking a call that should be a methods not found, method not found call, uh, revert the transaction, and turning it, in, turning it silently into an, a no-op, just not doing anything, which normally would not be a problem. The problem is when you have functionality that A, expects those permissions to authorize someone else to be spending your money, like I sign that Rob can spend my money. And at the same time, I'm using the traditional way of doing approvals. And I have given that program approval to spend my money because I expect that when does it spend my money? Only when I call it. In other words, it appears as though the program is operating as it was supposed to, except in this case, it was being misused. Now, suddenly, I can call the program through the entry point that says, well, check the permission. Yanis has given me authorization to spend his money. Uh, look at the permission. I go through that code path that checks the permission certificate that I, supposedly I have signed off-chain. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't complain that the token, the actual cryptocurrency, does not support permission certificates. Okay, fine. And then it goes and tries to transfer money from Yanis to the contract. But Yanis has actually happened to authorize the contract in the past because they have called it, because they have used the other path, the approved path. They have interacted with a contract. They know that when I call it, it's safe to say, contract, you are allowed to spend my money. So we had a contract that had a very large number of standing approvals. And when used normally, that would not have been a problem because when used normally, it means that I call the contract and I tell it, spend the money that I have approved you to send. That's what the code says. So that code is perfectly safe. The kind of exotic path that says, oh, and by the way, take that offline author authorization and based on that, allow me to spend someone else's money. That went through without any objection. And that someone else, if, it, if they had ever interacted with a contract, I could now go in and take their money. So how might a malicious actor take advantage of all this? Okay, so it's actually very easy. This, uh, this attack vector is very easy. It's just sneaky because nobody expects this to be there. As the malicious actor, all I have to go and do is say, call the program function, the contract function, that allows me to spend Rob's money. 
And what I want you to do is to take Rob's money and not give it to me directly. Just keep it in the contract. And that program path should revert. Whenever it's not given a proper permission from you, the program path should not go through. But for some kinds of cryptocurrencies, it just silently went through with no objection and it did not do anything. So I, as an attacker, come in and I say, look, Rob has signed the certificate that says that you are allowed to transfer Rob's money to the contract on behalf of me, though, because I'm the caller. The contract checks the permission and says, okay, well, let me, sure, let me make sure that Rob has given this permission. That particular permit call ends up being a no-op for that particular cryptocurrency. So it doesn't do anything. It's just silently ignored without failing. And the program after that does not know that the permission is not because of the certificate, but it's because Rob in the past has given the contract permission to do something with his money because Rob did useful work with that contract. And now it just goes and uses this past approval and moves the money into the contract. And now the money got deposited into the contract as if it's meant for me, the attacker. And on the next transaction, I can go and withdraw it. Maybe we need to understand the fallback function more. Are those put there by the malicious actor or is there just precedent? These are things that happened in the past and therefore no action is taken in the future. No, the, the fallback function is, uh, is just something that exists in the code of the contract uh, for, for many contracts. Uh, and it's just a catch all function. It's what will be called if nothing else can be called. And in this particular case, you have a program that represents a currency, represents a token, and it does not support the permit functionality. So what happens instead is that the fallback functionality is getting called. Now for 99% of contracts out there, the fallback functionality just says, I didn't find a matching method, revert the transaction. But for some very important kinds of cryptocurrencies, the fallback functionality it will silently not fail if it gets called. So if I submit a certificate, there's no certificate approval function. It will go into the fallback, which is the default function for the contract, and it will not fail. There are other currencies built on Ethereum. The, the most relevant for this particular vulnerability that we're discussing now uh, is, is just uh, what's called wrap ether or weth. And that's the wrapped version of the native cryptocurrency of Ethereum, which is ether. So it's a technicality that you have the native cryptocurrency of the blockchain, the one that's being used when you want to interact with the blockchain, the one that's being used when you participate in growing the chain. But then you need to treat that as a derivative token as well, as a token just like any other of the hundreds or thousands of tokens that run on Ethereum. So in order to have a unified functionality like a bank, very often you need to treat all tokens the same through the same API. And that's 
the that's the need that the WETH token addresses. It also makes the native cryptocurrency, Ether, makes it look like a derivative token, a token that has a smart contract in order for its logic to execute. So that's the one that had the major vulnerability that we identified. Not only is the fallback function important here, but so is its use of permits. In particular, what's been permitted in the past can be exploited through the fallback function in the future. So the permit function is, uh, is a modern way and very convenient way to get approvals for someone else to spend your money, to give approvals for someone else to spend their, your money. So advanced functionality that deals with tokens on Ethereum uh, is likely to use permit. And permit, again, doesn't do anything special. It just says, uh, I have this kind of token in my hands and I but someone passes me a certificate and I will ask the token, might this certificate mean that this person has approved that other person to spend their money? And if the token says yes, well, go ahead and try what you are going to do next. And the idea is that the token doesn't just say yes. The token also internally says, oh, yes, that certificate tells me that Rob has authorized Yanis to spend their money. I will keep a note of that authorization. So the next action of any caller will be, oh, now that I submitted the certificate, now I will do the actual movement of money because the contract knows about that permission. That's how it's supposed to work, but it doesn't always work that way. In this particular case, the first step, the permit ended up being a no-op. It did nothing, but it did not fail. Crucially, it did not fail. It silently succeeded without doing anything. The second step should fail, because now that there's no permission in there, why is Yanis allowed to spend Rob's money? But the attack vector actually took advantage of past permissions that Rob had given, not to Yanis specifically, but to the contract itself to take Rob's money and temporarily invest it. So that attack takes advantage of the first safeguard being a no-op. And the second part, which should not normally work without the first part, does work because there's a different path that gives a different kind of authorization for spending someone's money. So we said earlier that this was a very subtle attack. And just looking at the code doesn't necessarily reveal the flaw. That said, what can developers in the Ethereum community learn from all of this? Why the developer community in Ethereum should know of this attack vector? Uh, because they use permit a lot. And they need to be sure that they have taken into account that even though for 99% of tokens out there, permit will behave just as you expect. Either it will fail completely, or if you give it the right signature, it will keep track of that permission inside the token. For one out of 100 tokens, and this one turns out to be the most important one, which is Ether, but in wrapped form, for the most important token in the Ethereum ecosystem, you have permit not doing what you might expect. If you call it with any kind of signature, of course, it will do nothing. It will not register permissions because the code of the token has not foreseen any such functionality. But at the same time, it will not reject the transaction. 
It will not say, oh, this is an invalid signature. It will just happily go through and do nothing. And if the rest of your logic is not behaving correctly with respect to that do nothing, then you have a problem. So Yanis and his team found this vulnerability. They did reach out to the Ethereum community for normal vulnerability disclosure, but they also lucked out by knowing someone at one of the affected companies that use smart contracts. There's a company that runs uh, that runs some smart contracts, and they are the ones that had this vulnerability. That vulnerability actually happened to also exist in five or six other code bases, but uh, the code base of that particular company is the one that had major exposure to this bug. So what really happens with vulnerability disclosures in Ethereum, and uh, this, this now is a habit for us because we've had uh, eight or nine vulnerability disclosures uh, in publicly deployed code in the past year. But this is obviously the most major one of all. So what happens typically in this case is that you try to get a synchronous contact uh, with, uh, with the people, with the implementers, or with the company behind the vulnerable protocol. Uh, now, most of the time, we go through some uh, disclosure service that also runs bug bounty programs. So they have an excellent contact list of most everyone who deploys contra uh, contracts in Ethereum. Uh, in this particular case, although we did go through that service, we actually knew someone who knew someone. We had a former co-author of a research paper who works for uh, a company that develops the Phantom blockchain. So does the name have anything to do with the Phantom blockchain? Uh, well, it's Phantom with an F, but it was a good fit. So we part of why we liked the name was also this match, because Phantom would have been a major victim of, of this vulnerability, uh, but uh, not directly, I should say. So within a few hours, they put us in touch with uh, the CEO, uh, and we had a channel on Telegram. And we told them there uh, what's, uh, what the vulnerability is. Given the relative newness of cryptocurrencies, I'm wondering about the maturity of the industry overall. I mean, are they able to ingest vulnerabilities that are reported to them? One perhaps interesting aspect is the process of disclosing a vulnerability and uh, how people react to that uh, because that, that's kind of interesting, right? kind of the disbelief that comes with that and uh, the denial uh, initially and how the vulnerabilities are demonstrated. Uh, the other perhaps is, uh, so if someone has the ability to steal anonymously a billion dollars, why don't they do it? Why do you disclose a vulnerability uh, instead of uh, exploiting it. Uh, the third, maybe, I don't know if that's good or not, uh, some mention that uh, this vulnerability that we discussed is arguably the largest ever crypto vulnerability. And that means a lot because there have been a lot of crypto vulnerabilities in the past, including some very major ones. Of course, it wasn't exploited, but it could very well have been. I can exploit it right now by going back to the state of the blockchain of two weeks ago to demonstrate that this was completely exploitable. We just chose not to exploit it. Um, so I think these are 
kind of interesting uh, points that maybe you might want to include something about them. And then I don't know if it's good to kind of include some kind of defensive point because uh, technical people have a very, uh, have uh, polarized views about cryptocurrencies these days. Um, and uh, I don't know, it's, uh, I don't know if I, I, I should be defensive about that or not, but uh, uh, I think there's a knee-jerk reaction to uh, all of that. We shouldn't touch it at all. Why is this interesting? Why is this good? This is somewhat surprising. It would seem that even a great developer can acknowledge that at least all software has vulnerabilities. Yes, I think, first of all, there's a natural element of denial. Everyone, when faced with a, a scenario where their code is claimed to be vulnerable, their first reaction will be, no, that's, that's not true. I've thought of that, is, is what they'll tell you. Uh, secondly, because of a pretty high number of low-quality warnings, uh, most uh, development groups do get such warnings no, I don't want to say every week, but certainly one a month. So they get a lot of false positives reported uh, by people who have not really reproduced the claimed vulnerability. So it's not completely unreasonable for the developers or for an organization, especially if it's not the developers, if it's the CEO to say, oh, yeah, we've seen this bug report before. No, no, it's not valid. You cannot really exploit that. We've gone through that. And that's very often the first reaction. That's very often the first reaction. And uh, even with proof of concept code, it could take a couple of hours until people really understand the essence, especially of a new attack vector, and to agree. And we had to go through that twice in this particular vulnerability disclosure with multi-chain for each instance of the vulnerability, we had to explain, no, this is actually real. Because we would get objections of the form, no, no, our other code prevents that. No, it doesn't because of this or of that. Just run the proof of concept we sent you and you will see. So we have, we have to overcome very often some initial negative reaction. And it's also pretty awkward thing to try to convince people that you are A, qualified, and B, a benevolent, a white hat hacker. Uh, so that kind of awkwardness is what we are often trying to get away from by having an intermediary, by having a service that's well known. Uh, for instance, Immunify, the bug bounty service, the best known smart contract bug bounty service, and to have them contact the victims have them contact the vulnerable service and say, hey, we have some pretty trustworthy white hat hackers here and they reported this vulnerability and our engineers confirmed that it's very likely real. Uh, so can we get on a channel and discuss this? Let's look at the phantom function attack in more detail. It turns out there are several layers to this attack. Well, uh, the blockchain contains immutable programs. The blockchain is a data structure that once you deploy a program, 
you cannot really change it unless the logic of the program says, oh, and by the way, I will disable myself when this message comes in. Uh, if you don't have that, there's no fixing the vulnerability. There's mitigation any way you can, and this depends on the situation. Now, in this particular case, there was one attack vector, two vulnerabilities, four threats. What do I mean by that? It's the same attack vector with the permit function that I described before. There were at least two major vulnerable services. So the same code existed in two places, two very different pieces of functionality. And you needed different attacks for the two. So the code that actually performed the proof of concept attack was very different in one case versus the other. And the total was four different threats. And I'm distinguishing the four different threats because some of them can be mitigated and some of them, in principle, are very hard to mitigate. Remember, a vulnerability in a code base isn't always exploitable. Yeah, it's a flaw, but it would require other things in order to exploit it. And sometimes you do see vulnerabilities chained together. That's an exploit chain. What's cool about blockchain is that it captures the flaw, and even after it's fixed, you can go back in time and look and see that flaw to better understand how the threat worked. So let me explain the threats. So threat number one, there was about 500 million of exposed funds that we could steal right then and there. It's, it's an actual transaction. I can show it to you now because on the blockchain, you can always go back in time and, and show. Two weeks ago, let's pretend we are in the state of the blockchain as of two weeks ago, and let's run the proof of concept transaction to show that I can steal half a billion dollars directly. So that's the first threat. Very major, everyone understands that. The second threat was the same code existed in different blockchains, and we were not even sure about the exposure there because those are more minor blockchains, uh, but still they handle significant money. Still, this was a smaller threat. It turned out a few days later, we uh, determined that this was about a 40 million threat, roughly. So these vulnerabilities could have affected millions of dollars in cryptocurrency. The next vulnerability is, however, the big one. The third and very major vulnerability was the following. One of the victims, not the vulnerable code, but one of the accounts that trusted the vulnerable code and that would have been a victim, not only had over 300 million in that account that we could steal, but it was also an escrow account that held some money that had moved to different blockchains. So the money had moved to different blockchains and it was escrowed so that it could not be used during the time that the money lived in a different blockchain. This means that the vulnerability had theoretically infinite impact. I could take a billion dollars, say, I want to move this to that other chain. And when I see that it actually got moved to that other chain, I steal it from here and I also have it in that other chain. I just turned my billion dollars into two billion. And at the same time, of course, I wouldn't just steal my money. I would also steal the half a billion from everyone else in there. So we are talking about a major exposure, not just of about half a billion dollars, but also a vector that allowed doubling money 
And of, of course, you cannot double money indefinitely, but you can certainly do it at the level that it does not completely destroy the ecosystem. There's still some trust in this money. So it's unclear to say how much money you can steal that way, but it's still significant. I want to note that when we talk about the multiplying effects of some of these cryptocurrency vulnerabilities, we're still talking about a very finite amount of currency. We're not creating money out of nothing. As with stock, there's a certain number of shares available. And if more people claim ownership than those shares, then the value of each share dilutes or drops until the stock is worth nothing. That can happen with cryptocurrency. Well, in the whole... In the whole blockchain, creating money out of nothing walks a very fine line with creating money out of some, something. It's a very fine line that separates creating money out of nothing versus creating money out of something. Uh, so is there could there be an infinite multiplier? Obviously not. Anything that could be an infinite multiplier will erode trust so quickly that the whole currency that's vulnerable will lose value right away in real world terms. But in terms of accounting, could there be vulnerabilities that allow you to multiply some kind of money by infinity? Absolutely, absolutely. So what will happen if someone does this, takes advantage of this vulnerability? Well, that currency goes to zero. Its value goes to zero. Nobody accepts to trade it for any other currency. So it's a collapse of that particular currency every time a vulnerability of this kind is discovered, that some attacker can multiply their money uh, ad infinitum. The important thing here is that the vulnerability was disclosed before someone took advantage of it, before the value of the effective currencies could collapse. The other blockchain that we're talking about has a valuation right now between five and six billion. So if I were to steal another half a billion, probably it would not collapse right away from that theft. Most of the money there would still be good. So that's the third major theft, the third major threat. The fourth threat then is one for the future, where the account has no funds today, but it might someday. And that's when the phantom function could come in and wipe out those funds. At the time the researchers disclosed this vulnerability, close to 5,000 different accounts had been given infinite approval to the vulnerable contracts on Ethereum. Fortunately, that number has since diminished. And the fourth threat was that many thousands of accounts had given approvals to the vulnerable code to spend their money. And that's not a direct threat because we are talking about accounts that right now do not have money that can be stolen through this attack. But in the future, whenever they might get money that can be stolen via this attack, someone can be watching the blockchain and steal it right away. So that fourth vector is nearly impossible to mitigate without really going out to the world and telling thousands of different account holders in some way or another, whatever real world channel you can, go and no longer trust this vulnerable contract for this kind of money.
Like most software currencies, you need to update it for periodically. Unfortunately, the mechanism for alerting customers is not quite as solid, particularly if you don't check in on your cryptocurrency regularly. So the three first threats were mitigated uh, pretty successfully. I mean, I would say over 99.5% successfully uh, within a week or 10 days. And the fourth threat is still ongoing to this day, although by now it's significantly smaller. Right now it's a little over 2,000 uh, accounts with approvals, and most of them are not very active accounts. So now slowly we can start saying that even the fourth threat is mostly mitigated. But the fourth kind of threat, the fourth kind of threat is always extremely messy. You have to go out in the world and tell people uh, you are vulnerable. You haven't done anything wrong, but you have trusted some vulnerable code. Now go and revoke that trust because anyone can steal your money. And right now you don't have money of that particularly stealable kind, but it's a very popular kind. So at any point they could arrive in your account. You could do an exchange or you could bring some money in and suddenly this money can be stolen. So how does Ethereum, for example, push out the fact that people need to revoke their permissions? So the, the primary way to get the word out is uh, indeed to go to the media, to go on Twitter and announce that. Uh, because the Ethereum blockchain has one explorer service, which is Etherscan, uh, and everyone who wants to watch the activity of their accounts will go on Etherscan, Another very effective way to communicate with the anonymous holders of those accounts, we don't know who they are in most cases, is to put a banner on the account on Etherscan and say, this account is vulnerable to this kind of attack. Please go and do that. And indeed, the company Multichain did that for, I think, over 2,000 accounts. Uh, they put banners on Etherscan with the collaboration of the Etherscan people. They put banners of this kind to warn through that. Uh, but also, you contact people in the real world. You get the word out that there is a vulnerability. If you've ever interacted with this service, go and do that. And of course, they also did it. And actually, they did it even before the public announcement. They did it through their own UI, through their own web app, through their own mobile app or whatever. Their UI said to every returning user, go and revoke your permissions. But the problem is not the returning users. The problem is the people who interacted with this service six months ago, and they don't, don't even remember anymore that they interacted with this service, but their account is still vulnerable. function was perhaps one of the most public of the vulnerabilities, but Yanis and his team has found other vulnerabilities in cryptocurrency. So there were quite a few interesting vulnerabilities uh, disclosed that we disclosed in the past year. Uh, the DeFi saver one was our first about a little over a year ago. Um, it was very interesting, but mostly because of highly technical elements that in order to get to the vulnerable point, you need to repay some loans uh, from the victim. So the code had a bug, but in order to exploit that bug, you have to get a loan and repay the victim's loans. And only after that, you could get all of the collateral of the loan of the victim. So 
uh, you could pay off, say, a $2 million loan and get back $5 million. Uh, so that was the interesting part there uh, in that vulnerability. So I'm wondering if Yanis is starting to see a particular pattern. For example, are we seeing use after free or what are we seeing in cryptocurrency? So the best known attack vector in Ethereum smart contracts is what's called reentrancy, which in the middle of a transaction, you call out to code and the code calls back into you. And if you, if you are not in a consistent state, when uh, the code calls back into you, uh, what could happen is that you end up with all sorts of logical errors. For instance, if I'm in the middle of giving back some money to clients and I want to do accounting of that money, I want to say, Rob got his $10, but I don't actually write on my balance sheet that Rob got these $10 before I call Rob to receive these $10, then in the middle of that call, Rob can come back and say, hey, give me the $10 that you owe me. And if I don't update and say, hey, I'm giving this money to Rob, before I go back to give it, Rob can call a third time and say, give me the $10 that you owe me. And that's with this reentrancy attack vector, uh, one can get multiples of their money, assuming that the contract logic supports something like that. So this was the oldest, best known uh, vulnerability in Ethereum uh, that was uh, that became popular with a DAO hack back in 2016. So let's talk about that for a minute. The Ethereum network is a network of computers all running the Ethereum blockchain. DAO, which is Decentralized Autonomous Organization, eliminating the need for documents and people in governing and creating a structure with a decentralized control. In 2016, DAO was subjected to an attack exploiting a combination of vulnerabilities, including one concerning recursive calls. That resulted in transfer of 3.6 million Ether, or roughly around 11.5 million Ether that had been committed to the DAO organization, valued at the time to be about $50 million. The researcher said, this is actually not a flaw or an exploit in DAO contract itself. Technically, the Ethereum virtual machine was operating as it was intended, but Solidity was introducing security flaws into the contracts that were not only missed by the community, but missed by the designers of the language itself. So that's what most people think about when they think of vulnerabilities in Ethereum. But it's arbitrary code. So there can be any kinds of attack vectors. Uh, most of them are not low level. It's not use after free uh, vulnerabilities. It's not buffer overruns. Uh, it's mostly vulnerabilities that may have to do with subtle semantics of the language, such as reentrancy, subtle semantics of different APIs, or financial manipulation. Something that's very, very popular is anytime you interact with a financial service and they ask other contracts on the blockchain, how much is a dollar right now compared to, say, euros? Well, it's on the blockchain, so I can perhaps tilt that price by making the, the other contract that keeps track of the price of the dollar, giving it enough information to be convinced that right now the dollar is very cheap. If I can do this kind of manipulation and can confuse what's called the pricing oracle of the first contract, 
then there could be a benefit to doing that. So that's, that's another common kind of attack vector. Uh, you check a price on the blockchain. The blockchain does not have knowledge of the real world. It tries to estimate the knowledge of the real world based on its past transactions and the state that it has accumulated. And if you can affect that state in some way and give the contract wrong pricing information, you can take that, take advantage of that in all sorts of ways. Get loans for disproportionate amounts, get back disproportionate amounts from investments or from exchanges, all sorts of things. So we've discussed the vulnerabilities. Does Yanis offer any best practices to follow in avoiding these? So the standard practice in smart contracts is to employ specialized auditing services that uh, look into your code and try to find vulnerabilities before the code is actually deployed. And that's an excellent practice. It's it's very stringent requirement for high maturity protocols. And auditors are highly specialized and they will not find all vulnerabilities, but it's significantly harder to find vulnerabilities in audited code relative to non-audited code, no matter how expert the programmers are, because all of us have our blind spots. In fact, our very first major vulnerability that we discovered last year in DeFi Saver, the service you mentioned earlier, uh, the programmers of that service are ex-auditors. They are people who are highly expert in security on Ethereum. They used to do auditing uh, for at least a couple of years. They had a pretty good auditing service. So they felt pretty confident that they are aware of all security considerations when they are writing code. So their code is likely safe. At the same time, it's very, very good to have some other eyeballs look at your code, go over your code, even if you are an expert. It's a completely different standpoint, and often it finds a lot of issues that could lead to high-value vulnerabilities. So that's one practice. Uh, the other practice is a coding practice. Uh, when deploying a contract, it's good to put in some defensive mechanisms uh, to make the contract possible or upgradable, to put in, in the code logic some safety valve that in case something goes wrong, allows you to take over. Now, the problem there is that this goes very much against the philosophy of the blockchain. Those contracts are autonomous agents. They're supposed to be programs that operate and live on their own without anyone's authorization. Uh, if I'm interacting with them, I just look at the code. I don't need to know who runs it. Whoever deployed it originally should have no special permissions. And by creating upgradability functionality or pausability functionality, I'm, I'm implicitly giving permissions to some owner. And that's kind of bad philosophically for many of those protocols, many of those services. So there's a very fine line between having some form of control for safety and at the same time, allowing the contract to operate autonomously. And most uh, decentralized protocols, most protocols that run over the blockchain these days try to balance these two. And some go completely on one side or the other. Given his vulnerability research, how does Giannis feel about cryptocurrency for his own use? Uh, I feel 
fairly confident given the standard issues that one, I mean, I, in, a, in any kind of, in any kind of investment or money holding, uh, the degree of confidence once one has, and we're talking here about entirely security aspects, right? Not valuation or anything else. In terms of security, uh, I would not feel as confident as in traditional finance yet, but I would feel almost as confident, especially with good practices of differentiation and good infosec practices about how I'm managing my keys, how I'm managing my machine, et cetera. So I would feel reasonably confident. I will say something that's kind of juicy, but not perhaps uh, the best thing to say. We have lost more money as a company from traditional finance fraud than from blockchain fraud. We have lost a couple of thousand uh, when a virus on one machine went into our online, uh, online money transfer account and issued some transfers to some Russian sounding name in the Netherlands. We complained within 20 minutes. It's been a couple of months. We've never gotten that back through the regular banking system with a full police report and with immediate contact of both sides of the bank transfer. We may get that eventually, but we haven't. Of course, it's a small sum. It's, it's a money transfer system, the one that we use to pay employees. But we've lost more money in banking that I would normally consider fairly safe as a consumer, I would consider that we would be at least reimbursed for that. Uh, but still, that was a heavier loss for us than uh, dealing on the blockchain, dealing sums of money on the blockchain with good uh, security practices. I'd like to thank my guest, Yanis Maradakis, for talking about his research. To ardent supporters of cryptocurrencies, this isn't an attack on cryptocurrencies to poke holes in the code to find and report vulnerabilities. Rather, it's an attempt to strengthen cryptocurrencies. All currencies, to some degree, function on the basis of trust. And if we keep hearing about the millions of dollars in cryptocurrencies gone missing because of poor coding practices, or more often, poor configuration and auditing of the code, then these currencies will go bankrupt. Rather, let's keep researching and keep finding and fixing these vulnerabilities and build that trust. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter or join me on subreddit or Discord. You can find the deets at hackermine.com. The Hackermine is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, by For All Secure. For The Hackermine, I remain the original blockchain, Robert Vimosi. <laughs>